Well, this morning we come to uh, our time in the Word, and we are continuing with a series of messages that we have been looking at as to help us understand why we do what we do. And this morning we're tackling the issue of, of why do we celebrate the Lord's Communion, or the Lord's Supper, we should say. Why do we celebrate the Lord's Supper? There, as you know, there are many different uh, denominations uh, of Christianity, and there's uh, quite a wide uh, smattering of different beliefs and theology. But one of the things that we share in common is this whole idea of the practice of the Lord's uh, Supper and what the Lord has given us in it. Now, we differ in the meanings, and we'll get into some of that a little bit later. But I, I just raise that to say that it's a, it's a key fundamental issue of Christianity. And we need to make sure that we understand it and understand why we do what we do. So that's what we're going to tackle this morning. We're going to explain why we celebrate the Lord's Supper on a regular basis. Would you uh, please join me in prayer? Our Lord and our God, we just ask that you would meet with us this, at this moment as we open your word to rightly understand what you say, what you've given us. Lord, this is the, the truth that our souls need. This is the, the light that our dark paths need to, to, to guide us along the way. Lord God, we just ask for your help as we, uh, Lord, tackle this passage. Uh, help me to explain clearly what your word says and help us all to rightly understand. Submit ourselves to your word and to be edified this morning uh, by you, by your spirit, working through your word. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, church, why do we celebrate the Lord's Supper? I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. And it's going to be our starting place this morning. The, Lord's, uh, the account of the Lord's Supper is given by the Synoptic Gospels. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. As we went through the book of John, you noticed that the Lord's Supper was, the details of the Lord's Supper was not given to us there, so it is not found in the Gospel of John. But it is provided for us, uh, an explanation of it, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which we commonly read when we partake of the Lord's Supper. So this morning, I want us to look at Matthew's account of this. I'm going to read Matthew 26, verses 17 to 30, just to give us a little bit of the context of what's going on. Uh, and of the Lord's Supper itself. So Matthew 26, beginning at verse 17. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is near. I am to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. The disciples did as Jesus directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Now when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve disciples. As they were eating, he said, Truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. Being deeply grieved, they each one began to say to him, Surely not I, Lord. And he answered, He who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. The Son of Man is to go, just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And Judas, who was betraying him, said, Surely it is not I, Rabbi. Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. 
While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day that I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So church, why do we celebrate the Lord's Supper? We're going to use various passages, but I wanted to begin here in Matthew, and I wanted, I wanted to, to, to begin with the obvious reason why we celebrate the Lord's Supper, and that is because it is commanded by Him. We celebrate the Lord's Supper because it is commanded by Jesus Himself. And, and we see this by looking at the imperatives in the various passages where the Lord's Supper is discussed or relayed to us. In this passage, it, those imperatives uh, appear to us in verses 26 and 27. Remember, an imperative is a command. This is something that's not optional. Uh, it, it is something that is a word spoken by the Master, in this case Jesus, to his servants, in this case us. So look at verse 26, which says, While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat. In verse 26, those two words, take, eat, are in the imperative voice. They're commands. They're not optional. So, uh, this time, keep in mind, John relays that, that Judas Iscariot had left, so you're dealing with the 11 disciples, those who were truly converted, those who would go on to become apostles of Christ. Jesus is enacting for them something that would, would come to pass, but had not yet come to pass. He is giving them a command to take that bread and to eat it. So, we see the next imperative in verse 27. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said to them, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. And the, and the word drink there is, again, in the imperative. It's a command. They were, it was not optional uh, for them to, whether they were to drink of this or not. And we're going to see in other passages where the Lord um, expands this really to, I think, to... Uh, a timeless command, a timeless imperative. But you could say for sure right now, there's no doubt about the 11 disciples were commanded to partake of the Lord's Supper here. Now, a couple things I wanted to point out uh, to you is the background of the Lord's Supper is what? We read of that in, um, in verse, uh, sorry, in verse 17. Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? Um, so there's a lot of, there's, within some scholars, there's a lot of dis discussion of when, when, the timing when Jesus ate the Passover. We're not going to get into that today. We're going to hold, we hold to the traditional view that Jesus ate the Passover. Again, uh, as we explained when we were going through the book of John, uh, he ate the Passover at a time where some of the Passover lambs were actually being slain so that he could eat the Passover even while the lambs were being slain and yet still celebrate, rightly celebrate the Passover with his disciples. So I think clearly Jesus 
initiated the Last Supper uh, during this Passover meal. And if that's true, then history tells that the Passover meal was celebrated by uh, four different cups. Today, I'm not going to get into all of the historical background that the Jews practiced behind that. And uh, sort of the reason for that is I want to keep to the central theme of, of why we celebrate the way that we do and tackle some other things. So um, Jesus himself doesn't give us, I say the Bible itself doesn't give us a lot of details about the different cups of the Passover. So while all that is interesting historical background, I don't think it's necessary for us to understand that in order to understand, rightly understand the Lord's Supper. So he takes these, the cup, and he takes... During this Passover dinner, he takes one of the cups that they would share together, and he takes a portion when he would, um, when they would traditionally break bread to celebrate what the Lord had done. He took these things and he inaugurated them and did something new with them and pointed not to the Passover uh, of the Israelites, uh, the Passover of the angel of death, um, and which led the Israelites out of Israel, angel of death freeing the Israelites, really, and it's the Lord that led the Israelites out of Egypt, uh, to say it rightly. But it was that, it's the celebration, the fact that the angel of death passed over the Israelites, those who had the blood sprinkled on their doorposts and on the mantle of their house uh, in obedience to the Lord. So that blood, the blood of those lambs, represented, uh, it was a shield for them and, and represented safety and salvation. And so, too, the Lord is using that same kind of imagery to point to his work yet to come uh, that uh, he would be the shield and protection for his people that they might not suffer death, eternal death. So, again, what my point here is just trying to give you a little bit of the, of, of the background, but uh, um, we're looking at these imperatives, and I just want to uh, point that out. The other thing I want to point out before I go to the next text is that when Jesus uh, is is uh, describing this to his disciples and commanding this. Historically, where were we? On the front side of the cross or on the back side? We're on the front side. So later as we discuss what the elements are, whether the actual blood and body of Christ or not, keep that in mind. When Jesus initiates this and he says, this is my body, this is my blood, his blood hadn't actually been spilt yet. The atonement hadn't happened yet. Justification hadn't happened yet. So that, that's just something that we need to keep in mind as we later uh, look at what is the meaning of the Lord's Supper. So again, Matthew 26 is a key passage for us, but I, but I want to show you all the passages this morning at least quickly. So turn to Mark 14. Mark 14. And I won't give you the full, the full context. We're just going to go right into the passages that talk about um, the Passover. Actually, I think it's important here to get some of this context, so I'm going I'm to backtrack and look at verse 12. On the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said to two of his disciples, and he sent, sorry, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, the teacher says, Where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he himself will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. Prepare for us there. 
The disciples went out and came to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he came with the twelve. As they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be grieved and to say to him, One by one, surely not I. And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who dips with me in the bowl. For the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. While they were eating, he took some bread, and after blessing, he broke it and gave it to them, and said, Take it, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, truly, I, sorry, truly I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Again, can you notice the imperatives there? Verse 22, verses 22 and 23. It is that the word take it, this is my body. So take it is in the imperative, take. Verse 23, and when he had given to them, uh, when he had given the, uh, sorry, when they had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. Now notice that in, in verse 23, he it is not exactly in the imperative. Actually, it's not in the imperative at all. But notice the how 20, the end of 23 ends. He gave it to them, and they all drank from it. So it's interesting that Mark gives us really the obedience portion. He doesn't give us the command of Jesus to actually drink, but he tells us that they all actually did drink it. So uh, we can imply by that, from that that Jesus did indeed uh, command it. Again, Mark would reiterate what we read in Matthew. Turn to Luke 22. Luke 22. As you read Luke's narrative of the same event. Again, verse 22. I'll begin at verse uh, 1, just to give you a little more of the context. Now, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is called the Passover, was approaching. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they might put him to death, for they were afraid of the people. And Satan entered into Judas, who was, also, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve. And he went away and discussed with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. They were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and began seeking a good opportunity to betray him to them apart from the crowd. Then came the first day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, so that we may eat it. They said to him, Where do you want us to prepare it? And he said to them, When you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house that he enters. And you shall say to the owner of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large furnished upper room. Prepare it there. And they left and found everything, just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. When the hour had come, he reclined at the table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not eat of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. 
And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup, which is poured out for you, is a new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with me on the table. For indeed, the Son of Man is going, just as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to discuss, discuss amongst themselves which one of them it might be who is going to do this thing. So here we have Luke's account. And, and again, I want to point out to you the imperatives. Here, Luke gives us a little, little variance. Um, and this is just one of those things where under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Luke records a different detail than the others. They don't tell us the same things, um, but all indeed are true and accurate. Verse um, 19, so when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So here, the, Luke doesn't record the command to actually eat it, but he says, do this. And, and it, it implies that during the act of actually eating the bread, there's that command to do this in remembrance. That, that do is in the imperative. Do this. In verse 20, Luke tells us, in the same way he took the cup. So again, in the same way applies in the same manner, the same kind of symbolism, and the same kind of imperative. It's there. It's a command. We also see the command in the Apostle Paul's recounting of or explanation of the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And here I'm not going to read the whole passage because it's one we read frequently and fits in with the other context. But I want you to look at verses uh, uh, 24. Uh, I'll begin reading at 23 through 25. He says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So here Paul relays a very similar saying, in fact, the exact same saying uh, that is recorded for us in Luke's gospel. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Again, that word do, do this, is in the imperative. It's a command. So every, every person who has, been, who has been born again is under obligation of the Holy Scriptures and of God to obey the Lord's command here and partake of the bread and the cup. As Pastor MacArthur and Dr. Mayhew point out in their, in their systematic theology, biblical doctrine, Jesus' repeated instruction, do this in remembrance of me, indicates that the celebration of Lord's Supper is not optional. Every believer should observe it routinely, and prolonged failure to do so constitutes a sin, unquote. And, and I would also like to point out that partaking of the Lord's Supper is always in the context of the local church. It wasn't given or has never been understood to be something that is for private or personal observance. So again, this this is another another fact that you could rally to help people understand that that participation in the local church is is essential. The Lord's Supper is not something uh, that uh, believers are to celebrate individually or at home without meeting with the local church. So we are commanded to celebrate the Lord's Supper with the local church 
with the local church where God has placed us. So why do we celebrate the Lord's Supper? Well, the first one, the obvious one, is that the Lord commanded it. The Lord Jesus himself commanded it. We, we do that simply because the Lord commands it. And if we had no other scriptures, we would simply do it because he commanded it. But he has given us scriptures to help us understand uh, what the Lord's Supper is about. And so there are some significant other reasons why we celebrate the Lord's Supper. The second reason that I want to point out to you this morning is that celebrating the Lord's Supper is a commemoration of Jesus' vicarious substitutionary death. Celebrating the Lord's Supper is a commemoration. That's the key word you want to remember. So the first word, the first reason had to do with the command. The Lord Jesus commanded it. The second reason has to do that with the idea of commemorating something that Jesus did. And that something is Jesus' vicarious substitutionary death. Now, in dealing with this, with the belief uh, that we celebrate because the Lord's Supper is a commemoration, I need to deal with some other views that come into play here because not every Christian holds to the fact that the Lord's Supper is a commemoration of Jesus' vicarious substitutionary death. And, and when I say that, I want to acknowledge that most other views would say that that the Lord's Supper is a commemoration of Jesus' view, but it's not only that. They would add much more to it, and I'll explain that in just a moment. So in summary, uh, Millard Erickson in his Systematic Theology gives us the four views that are kind of a high-level view. And the first level is that the bread and the wine are the physical body and blood of Christ. Now as you go through this, I want you, I want you to, uh, I want to point out that really the key aspect is what is the bread and what is the wine? What does it symbolize and how does Christ relate to those elements? So the four views kind of revolve around that. So the bread, the first view is the bread and wine are. That's the key word. The bread and wine are the physical body and blood of Christ. That word are, again, is very, very important. Second view, the bread and wine contain the physical body and blood of Christ. Again, in the second view, contain is, that, is the important word. Third view, the bread and wine contain spiritually the body and blood of Christ. And the fourth view, the bread and wine represent the body and blood of Christ. So my attempt this morning is to help us understand why we do what we do, and part of that is understanding why we partake the Lord's Supper, why we do. In order to do that, I've got to explain uh, how others would interpret that to help us understand how we understand it. So the first view that I'm going to deal with this morning is that the bread and the wine are the physical body and blood of Christ. This is the Roman Catholic position on the Lord's Supper, which was officially established at the Council of Trent. Uh, I don't know how many of you are historian buffs, history buffs, I should say, or not, but the Council of Trent was uh, held from 1544 to 1563. Uh, to give you a little context, Martha wrote his 90, Martin Luther wrote his 95 Theses in 1517, so it was during that time after the, uh, while the Reformation was going on that the Council of Trent was held, and in, in part because of the Reformation. But um, the Council of Trent sent forth three major tenets of the Roman Catholic position, all centered around the fact that the body and blood of Jesus Christ are 
present in the bread and in the wine. Now, this morning I'm going to quote uh, several times from the Catechism of the Catholic Church because I want you to hear it, the horse speak, so to speak. Um, I want you to hear the words from their mouth so that I cannot be accused of somehow distorting their view or misrepresenting them. So paragraph 1376 of the Catechism says this, The Council of Trent summarizes the Catholic faith by declaring, Because Christ, our Redeemer, said that it was truly His body that He was offering under the species of bread, it has always been the conviction of the Church of God, and this Holy Council now declares again, that by the consecration of the bread and wine, there takes place a change of the whole substance of the bread into the substance of the body of Christ our Lord, and of the whole substance of the wine into the substance of his blood. This change the Holy Catholic Church has fittingly and properly called transubstantiation. Unquote. Paragraph 1377 explains this further. The Eucharist... And I'll just uh, interject here. When we talk about the Lord's Supper, there are some synonyms. The Lord's Supper and communion, you're probably aware of. But the Eucharist is one that you may know if you come from a Catholic background. But the Eucharist is a word that basically ties back to the Greek word Eucharisto, which means to give thanks. It's a giving of thanks. So when we talk about, uh, when we use the word Eucharist, they're talking about the Lord's Supper. All right? So the Eucharist Eucharistic presence of Christ begins at the moment of the, of the consecration and endures as long as the Eucharistic species subsists. Christ is present whole and entire in each of the species and whole and entire in each of their parts in such a way that the breaking of the bread does not divide Christ. Unquote. So what they're saying is that as that, uh, actually the, typically they're little wafers, the bread isn't actually broken, but probably originally they didn't have little wafers made like that with the little symbol of the Catholic Church put on it. So they just use bread like the early church. So uh, no matter how many times that wafer or how many times that bread is broken, they're saying Christ subsists in that. Christ cannot be divided at all, but his body exists inside that bread. And actually that bread becomes his body. Okay? So transubstantiation holds that, that though the communion element might look like bread, smell like bread, taste like bread, it has been metaphysically changed into the real body of Christ. Now Roman Catholics aren't bothered by the fact that human or even chemical analysis of the bread and wine would show the elements to be what? Bread and wine and nothing more. But again, uh, the Catechism of the Catholic Church has something to say about this. Paragraph 1381 says this, that in this sacrament are the true body of Christ and his true blood is something that cannot be apprehended by the senses, says St. Thomas, but only by faith, which relies on divine authority. For this reason, in a commentary on, on Luke twenty two nineteen, where Jesus says, This is my body which is given for you, Saint Cyril says, Do not doubt whether this is true, but rather receive the words of the of the Savior in faith, so for since he is the truth, he cannot lie. So you notice what they're doing there. They're taking the Lord's words in a I would describe in a woodenly literalistic fashion, and then they're rallying rallying the Lord's uh, credibility and, and 
saying that the Lord wouldn't lie, which we would affirm the Lord would never lie. But they're saying the Lord wouldn't lie. The Lord said this is my body, so it must be his body. So despite what your taste buds tell you, despite what your nose tells you, despite what your touch of of your fingers tells you, despite what even chemistry would tell you, it's not really bread anymore at that point. It has become the body of Christ. As Millard Erickson explains, he says, to modern persons, transubstantiation seems strange, if not absurd. It is, however, based on Aristotle's philosophical distinction between substance and accidents. And most of us aren't philosophers, so uh, even I need some explanation. What, what did Aristotle mean between substance and accidents? James McCarthy, in his book, The Gospel According to Rome, helps us out. He, he says this, Aristotle defined accidents as the outward appearance of an object and the substance as its inner essence, the core of its reality. So Aristotle is saying there can be these accidents and that things can appear outwardly as one thing when inwardly there's something different that is essence. And that's, that's what transubstantiation claims. And in fact, this philosophy put forth by Aristotle and came into the church through Thomas Aquinas, and that is really the foundation for transubstantiation, to explain how something that looks like one thing is really something different. Now, understand that, that, that um, this whole transformation that occurs, uh, it, it occurs through the priesthood, uh, the sacerdotal system of the Catholic Church, only an ordained priest can uh, perform that kind of transformation on the bread, so says the Catholic Church. I don't want to get into that whole, uh, into how he does that or the process or anything, but what I wanted to summarize is this, and that, and that is this, the view that the elements are the actual body and blood of Christ must be rejected. It must be rejected. As stated in biblical doctrine, it, uh, MacArthur's and, and Mayhew's uh, systematic theology, it, it, this, this view fails to recognize the symbolic significance of Christ's statements. This is my body, this is my blood, which is referencing back to the passages in Matthew 26 where we started. When Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood, he is not speaking in a woodenly, literalistic fashion that we are somehow to interpret it as the literal blood and body of Christ. As I mentioned to you earlier, that would defy even the logic, even the the progression and timeline of the justification that Jesus provided because he hadn't yet spilled his blood. His body hadn't yet been broken for us. So it it just doesn't make sense and it doesn't make sense for other reasons as I'll point out. James McCarthy points out it doesn't make sense for another reason. That is this, a Jew drinking For a Jew, drinking human blood would have been more than just repulsive. It would have been unlawful. The law of Moses strictly forbade Jews from drinking blood. Leviticus 17, verses 10 to 14. We can be sure that if the disciples had thought that Jesus was asking them to violate this command, heated discussion and loud protests would have resulted. Yet there is no hint of such controversy in any of the accounts of the Last Supper. I read them to you. Most of them I read the whole context. There was no hesitation by the disciples, which shows that they did not understand this as his literal blood. The wine was just that. It was wine. It was not his blood. 
McCarthy also points out another difficulty. And I want to clarify, this is James McCarthy who wrote the Gospel according to Rome, not John MacArthur. Okay? John, James McCarthy points out this. When Christ said, with reference to the body, by uh, reference to the bread, this is my body, he was physically present with his disciples. Surely they would have not thought that, surely they would not have thought that Jesus' body was both at the table with them, as well as on the table, and later under the table as the crumbs fell down? Hey, do you see how ridiculous the how quickly it, the, the idea that the bread becomes the actual body of Christ becomes ridiculous? I, and I'm not belittling things, I'm just trying to state it as it is. This, this idea cannot be, cannot be sustained biblically. You've got to appeal to other sources, which is what the Roman Catholic Church does in order to support this. This view also requires the Lord's body to be in more than one location at a time. Remember, remember I read to you right from the Catechism of the Catholic Church that says that Christ's body isn't divided, and yet he's wholly present. Well, how is he wholly present, physically present? How is his body physically present in so many locations all over the world and while, he, while he's in heaven uh, as well, right? Simply impossible. We affirm the omnipresence of Jesus, right? He didn't set that aside when he took on humanity. But his humanity is not omnipresent, right? So that is not possible. Right? His humanity is in one place. And so there's no way for the Lord's body to be scattered here, there, all around the world at every time when a priest uh, carries out the, the right to change this, change the bread into uh, the body of Christ, or so they say. Now, so the, so the first major, what I call the first major tenet of the Roman Catholic view is that, is that the, the bread and wine are the actual body and blood of Christ, but that's not the only difficulty that we have with our view. The second major tenet of the view is that the Bread and wine, um, that, that with this view of the Roman Catholic view, is that the Lord's Supper involves a sacrificial act. It involves a sacrificial act, according to Roman Catholic theology. In sixteen, oh, sorry, in, thir- in uh, again, in the um, Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph thirteen sixty four, says this: In the New Testament, the memorial takes on new meaning when the Church celebrates the Eucharist. She commemorates the Christ Passover. And that, that's an important word to use, right? That's one we affirm, right? We affirm that it's a commemoration, but the, the statement isn't going to stop there. When the church celebrates the Eucharist, she commemorates Christ Passover, and it is made present. The sacrifice Christ offered once on the cross remains ever present, right? There, you know, the, the, uh, if I could say this, the Catechism of the Catholic Church has a way of confiscating, confuscating the obvious. In other words, making it very confusing, something that's obvious. So they have a very elaborate scheme. So what they're saying is, uh, the sacrifice Christ offered once for all, we affirm that, once for all, but it doesn't stop there, remains ever present. That's a key word. Paragraph 1365 says this, Because it is the memorial of Christ's Passover, the Eucharist is also a sacrifice. In the Eucharist, Christ gives us the very body which he gave up for us on the cross, the very blood which he poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. 
Paragraph 1367 says this, The sacrifice of Christ and the sacrifice of the Eucharist are one single sacrifice. The victim is one. When it says the victim, it's using that term of Christ. They see Christ as a victim. We would not. We would take issue with that. But the victim is one and the same. The same now offers through the ministry of priest who then offered himself on the cross. Only the manner of offering is different. And since in this divine sacrifice, which is celebrated in the Mass, the same Christ who offered himself once in a bloody manner on the altar of the cross is contained and offered in an unbloody manner. This sacrifice is truly propitiary. That last statement is huge. This sacrifice is truly propitiary. Now they would define it and say, not in the same sense that Christ propitiated our sins on the cross, but nonetheless, the Eucharist, the celebration of the Lord's Supper in Roman Catholic doctrine, is truly propitiary. To some sense, it takes away sins. This repeated ongoing sacrificial view of the Lord's Supper must be rejected as unbiblical, since, since it, it, it just cannot be sustained. Bibl- the, in biblical doctrine, again, a systematic theology book by MacArthur and Mayhew says this, this view undermines the reality that Christ's death on the cross was a once-for-all sacrifice, fully completed at Calvary. And since we don't, you know, we, we appreciate teachers and uh, writings of men like MacArthur and Mayhew, but we, we realize that they're not the authority. So we turn to Scripture. I'm going to read to you Scripture that says this. Romans chapter 6, verse 10. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. So Paul clearly says there that Christ died to sin once for all. And you can't nuance it and say, well, it's the same sacrifice. Just It's all one and the same. It's just kind of brought and made present. That just kind of like ruins the whole meaning of once for all. Once. A, a pinpoint in history. History is defined by the cross. The cross the sacrifice of the cross doesn't continue. It's, it was pinpointed to several hours when Christ endured your punishment and my punishment for sin on the cross and he paid the penalty that we owed. Once for all. Hebrews 9, chapter 9, verses 27 and 28 say this, Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment, so Christ also having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. Notice that that passage, verse 28. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many. right? And, And notice that word, so also, so Christ also. It's pointing back to verse 27, which is why I read that. Which says, which says this, inasmuch as it appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. The point is once. You die once. You don't die like once and then, and then experience subsequent like multi-mini deaths that help you die. That's, that's ridiculous. Hey, when people are dead, they're dead. They're gone once. You die once, and after this you face judgment. And so the, the, the analogy that the writer of Hebrew is saying, so in that same fashion that a man dies once and faces judgment, Christ died once. Once. Not once, it's kind of like trink, trickles on or continues on or is repeated. It's once. 
Hebrews 10.10. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ once for all. That that term once is so important in biblical doctrine. 1 Peter 3, verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. Again, just see see the reiteration. Here is the apostle Peter, the so-called first pope, saying he died once for all. Yet they explain away his words, sadly. But here, let's go to Jesus. What does he say? John 19.30 tells us this. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, this is when he was on the cross, he said, it is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It's done. Now, he wouldn't be resurrected for a few days, three. But when Jesus said that it is finished, he meant it's finished. The sacrifice for sin that is needed is done. It's completed. It's not repeated. And so so we must, to to be faithful to Scripture, we must reject the view that the bread and wine are the physical body and blood of Christ. And and along with that, the idea that that is a real sacrifice that continues today. But now we need to look at the second view, which is that the bread and wine contain the physical body and blood of Christ. So in this, this view changes the word are to contain. So instead of the bread and wine being the actual body and blood of Christ, here this view says the bread and wine contain the physical body and blood of Christ. And this is the view held by Martin Luther. As stated, again, I'll quote the systematic theology, biblical doctrine. Though Martin Luther rejected the Roman Catholic notion of transubstantiation and the idea that the Eucharist was a propitiatory sacrifice, he nonetheless maintained that Christ's body and blood are really present, and I'll quote, in, with, and under the communion elements, unquote. This view is called consubstantiation. That is not a term that Martin Luther used. It's a term that was applied to his view uh, many years later. As William... um, uh, Millard, Her- sorry, Millard Erickson uh, points out, Luther believed that the bread and the wine have not become Christ's body and blood, but that we now have the body and blood in addition to the bread and the wine. The body and blood are there, but not in a way that would exclude the presence of the bread and of the wine. Is that clear to you? Don't expect it to be. Luther insisted that there is a real eating of Jesus' body and that by partaking of the sacrament, one experiences a real benefit, forgiveness of sin and confirmation of faith. Luther held, this benefit is due, however, not to the elements in the sacrament, sacrament, but one's reception of the word by faith. So Luther wouldn't say that the there's any like uh, automatic benefit, and as well, Catholics would also caution there's no ad- automatic benefit to the person who receives it because a lot depends on the person if they're uh, in sin or how, whether they receive it by faith or not. But Luther, Luther did not step too far away from the Catholic Church on this view. But one area where Luther did was a strongly in strong disagreement, and that is in the area of the Lord's Supper as a sacrifice. Luther clearly understood that Christ died once for sin for all time, 
atoning sins once for all. So the believer is justified by faith alone on the basis of that one-time sacrifice. He held that there is no need for repeated sacrifices. So it's good to see him come clean on that and be clear on that. So I would commend Luther's bold stance for the gospel and his view that the bread and wine um, you know, uh, uh, aren't the actual sacrifice. That's not continued. We do have to reject his view that that the Lord's body, the Lord's blood is somehow contained within these elements. There's just no, there's no support for it in Scripture. And uh, this morning, I don't have uh, the time to go into all the Scriptures that Luther would have gone to to try to support his view. Um, just for the sake of time, uh, we're not going to go to all those verses. But there's, there's just, interpreted rightly, there's no support for the view that the body and blood of Christ somehow coexist with the bread and the wine. So that's the second view. The third view is that the bread and the wine contain spiritually the body and blood of Christ. You see, we're progressing away from the Roman Catholic view. So the third view is that the bread and wine contain spiritually. So Luther would say they're physically contained, um, although not transformed, not uh, within the bread. The, the Catholic view says they they are the body and blood of Christ. Luther's view was that the body and blood of Christ can, was contained within the elements. Here we're saying that the, that the body and blood of Christ are contained spiritually within the bread and the wine. So with this view, uh, interprets the words of Christ, this is my body figuratively. And there's a good reason for that. And I'll explain that in a moment. So this view interprets the word of Christ when he says, this is my body, this is my blood, interprets those figuratively and symbolically and sees the Lord's Supper as primarily a reminder of the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Yet it does not totally discard the idea of Christ's unique presence in the Lord's Supper. One, one understanding of, of this view is that, and, and, um, is that Christ is present in the Lord's Supper, but not physically or bodily. Rather, his presence in the sacrament is spiritual or dynamic. And that, that comes from uh, Millard Erickson's uh, systematic theology. This view believes that while the elements signify or represent the body and blood of Christ, they do more than that. They also seal. There is then a genuine objective benefit of the sacrament that by taking the elements, the participant actually receives anew and, continue, and, and continually the vitality of Christ. The benefit of the Lord's Supper should not be thought of as automatic. The effect of the sacrament depends in a large part upon the faith and re- receptivity of the participant, unquote. So again, this view says that the, that the bread and the wine are... Um, contains spiritually the body and blood of Christ. And that Christ is spiritually present in a unique way in, in the bread and in the wine so that uh, those who partake of it receive that spiritual benefit, although they put a caveat that not automatically. So, so what are we to think of that? By the way, that view is the one that's common among uh, Reformed churches, um, churches of the Reformed nature, such as John Calvin, uh, taught something similar. It's kind of interesting. It's, it's very difficult to pin Calvin down as to what he believed as well as uh, Zwingli uh, because I think their views changed a little bit. So by the end of their lives, Zwingli's view and Calvin's view were almost identical. So um, really, the, uh, how would we analyze this view? Generally, it, 
it is a, it's a view that we would accept with, except for the last portion about uh, the special presence of Christ in the actual elements themselves. Um, but, but what are we to think about this view that, that Christ, uh, that the bread and the wine are to be, uh, or, sorry, the bread and wine represent the body and blood of Christ in a figurative sense? I mean, I think there's a lot of support for this, and, and for this I commend um, those who hold this view because I think it does justice to the text. It is faithful to the text, and let me explain what I mean. When Jesus says, this is my body, and again, that's from Matthew 26, among other passages. When, he says, when Jesus says, this is my body, he's using a metaphor. He's using a symbol as he commonly did. Jesus did this routinely. We are to interpret scriptures in a literal sense when the literal sense makes sense. So as taught in, in seminary, uh, this little jingle, uh, when the literal sense makes sense, seek no other sense. Right? But that's, that's, that has to be thought through. When the literal sense makes sense, seek no other sense. In other words, if the literal sense fits the context and, and is completely understandable, then that's what was intended by the author of Scripture. But when you, when you read something from Scripture that doesn't make sense, that's when you need to pause and reflect upon the context. It doesn't automatically mean that the passage is figurative, but you need to look at the context of that passage, the context of that letter, the context of Scripture, to see if this is being used in a figurative way or not. But Jesus did routinely speak in figurative ways. So what are some examples of this? For example, John, in John chapter 10, verse 7, Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Now, does anybody debate that Jesus is a literal door? If you interpreted that literally, woodenly literal, you would say, yeah, Jesus was a literal door of sheep. Right? But we all know that's, he's not talking about that. I haven't read a single commentator who would hold that position. It's ridiculous. We know that Jesus is speaking metaphorically. He's speaking spiritually. He is the spiritual door of the sheep. In other words, you want to you gain entrance to heaven. You want to have your sins forgiven. You have to come by faith through Christ. He is that door. John chapter 10, verse 11, where Jesus says this, I am the good shepherd. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. When he says, I am am the good shepherd, is he really saying that his livelihood and his work was as a shepherd? No, no one debates that. Why? Because we know him to be likely a carpenter uh, until he began his ministry years. Jesus was not a shepherd in, in the typical sense, literal sense of the word. But was he a spiritual shepherd? Absolutely. He's the good shepherd, the perfect shepherd. There is no better shepherd. John 14, 6, passage you know well. Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That first phrase, I am the way. Right? So let me, let me translate. That word way could also mean road. I'm the road. So is Jesus saying that he's the literal road to heaven? No, no one debates that. I'm showing you obvious passages of scripture that, to help you realize that Jesus often said things about himself, spoke in a metaphorical sense, to speak about a spiritual truth. He is the only way to heaven. That's what he's saying. He is the only road, but it's not a physical road, it's a spiritual road. 
And so, why is it so difficult that when we come to a passage where Jesus says, when he points to the bread and says, this is my body, why is it so difficult to, to understand this in a figurative sense? Jesus isn't saying the bread became his body. He's saying that the bread represents his body, and the whole act of breaking that bread, as we read in several passages, that bread was broken, right, symbolizes how Christ's body was broken on the cross for us on our behalf. As, as MacArthur and Mayhew point out in Biblical Doctrine, when Jesus said, I am the bread of life, in John 6.35, a verse Roman Catholics often use to support their understanding of the Eucharist, his statement ought to be interpreted in the same way as his other I am statements, such as I am the light of the world, I am the door, I am the good shepherd, and I am the vine. These metaphorical expressions illustrate the truth of the gospel in profound ways, but they are not to be understood in woodenly literalistic terms, unquote. So I think there are other passages and other, other details that we could rally to our support, like the fact that when, at times when Jesus talks about the, the, the wine, he, he doesn't say the blood, he says the cup. This cup represents my blood. Right? This cup, partake of this cup. Well, if, if, if Jesus really meant that, that the wine was, was his blood, he would be pointing more to the blood, he would say that. And even after he partake, he gave of the cup to his disciples and said, drink, and they did. Jesus says, I will not partake of this fruit of the, what? Vine, until I'm with you, until I return. So it's not blood. Jesus said, fruit of the vine. It was still fruit of the vine. So I think it's pretty clear, although it's been massively confused and contorted. So I, I commend the, what I call the Reformed view for taking the, the words of Jesus uh, in a um, metaphorical sense, which I think does true justice to the context where those are, are given. So I commend them for that. So we agree with that. And yet, I think it's, it's going too far to ascribe a pres- special presence and benefit from um, partaking of the Lord's Supper. The, 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 when I say the special presence of the Lord in the Lord's Supper, it just seems to be pushing beyond the boundaries of Scripture. There's nothing explicit in Scripture that teaches the unique presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper. Right? That may be new news to you. Think about that. There's nothing inherently special about the bread and, and the cup, wine, um, juice as we use it. There's nothing inherently in that that will provide blessings in and of themselves. Even all the views that say there is, say that, well, it's not automatic and you have to receive it by faith. And it just gets really confusing. And it's not well grounded in Scripture. So I would say it's an area that we, you know, in the wisdom of God, he has chosen not to give us much details about this. So uh, MacArthur Mayhew, I think, will have a helpful comment on this. And they said, on the one hand, it is not wrong to speak of the Lord Jesus being spiritually present with his people when they celebrate communion, since he is spiritually present with believers all the time. And we know that from various passages of Scripture, that he'll never leave us or forsake us. And lo, I am always with you, Jesus said. On the other hand, the language of spiritual presence can be potentially confusing and unhelpful, perhaps causing some to think in terms of mystical encounters, ecstatic experiences, 
or the real presence uh, in a Lutheran or even Roman Catholic way, unquote. And so this leads us to what I believe is the the biblical view, and that is seeing um, the Lord's Lord's Supper as that which represents the body and blood of Christ, which is the fourth view. view, This view holds that the bread and the wine represent the body and blood of Christ. I, I think this is represented well to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 when he when he talks about this uh, that when Jesus says this is my body I'm reading from 1 Corinthians 11:24 this is my body which is for you do this in what remembrance remembrance of me he's not saying do it because you'll benefit spiritually He's saying, do it in remembrance of me now is there a spiritual benefit from obeying our Lord Jesus Christ absolutely So there are benefits. I'm just saying there's not a benefit that's inherent to the bread and to the cup in and of themselves. And so this is uh, the view that I believe best represents what the Bible teaches about the Lord's Supper. Again, I want to quote MacArthur and Mayhew because they summarize the biblical view quite well. When all the biblical texts are considered, the Lord's table is is best understood as a memorial celebration that strengthens believers in their walk with Christ because one... It commemorates Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice. Two, it reminds believers of the historical truths of the gospel, including Christ's incarnation, death, resurrection, and ascension. And three, prompts believers to repent of any known sin, causes them to rejoice in their redemption from sin and their saving faith with, with Christ, and motivates them to continue walking in loving obedience to their Lord while also reminding them to hope in His imminent return. So it's a mouthful, but I think that it's In summary, the biblical view looks at the Lord's Supper as a memorial, commemorating what the Lord has done. So why do we celebrate the Lord's Supper? Because it's commanded and because uh, it is a commemoration of the Lord's death on our behalf. Now, I'm going to give you two more, but I'll be brief with these, so don't panic in regards to time. So the, the third one, celebrating the Lord's Supper is a communion with Jesus. So while we affirm that he is not, that the body and blood of Jesus are not inherently present in in the bread and the cup, and while there's no special presence of Christ in the bread and the cup, yet there is a communion with him by partaking uh, of the cup. And I think we see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 14 and 16 uh, Paul's talking to the Corinthians um, about sin. He says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men, you judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? So he's saying there that the word sharing is the word which we get from communion, which is why I often refer to the Lord's Supper as communion. It actually comes from this passage that we partake, we commune. We, it's basically a celebration of what we have through the Holy Spirit, a communion with our Lord Jesus Christ. So it is, it is declaring our unity with him, which explains to us why Paul, later on in, in chapter 11, deals with the sinfulness of the Corinthians so intently. If we are united with Christ, and, and the communion celebrates that unity then it's, it's, 
you could see how, um, how Paul is trying to help the Corinthians understand that it is incongruous then to hold on to sin on one hand while proclaiming unity with Christ on, on the other. And, and Paul does this later on in verses 28, chapter 11, verses 28 through 32, where he says, But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he, he who eats and drinks eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason among you, Many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. And that flows from verse 27, where he says, Therefore, whoever eats, eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Right? So what is he talking about? He's saying that the, the person who, who holds on to sin, is holding on to a sin they won't repent of, while at the same time partaking of communion is being disingenuous. They're saying that they want the sinlessness of Christ at the same time they want their sin. <clears throat> Excuse me. One commentator explains that, that to, to, to partake of the bread and the cup in an unworthy manner means to take it ritualistically, to take it indifferently or with an unrepentant heart, a spirit of bitterness or any other ungodly attitude. But I, but I want to point out this, that in the context of 1 Corinthians, particularly the context of chapter 11... And chapter 1, where we know that there were many, what, that within the Corinthian church, within the individual believers, there was disunity. And we see it fleshed out. Um, he says, verse 19, for there must be factions among you. Verse 21, for in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and the other is drunk. Okay? So there was... When taking a communion, it was very different from what we have. They would have a love feast, and they would have this big meal together. And at the end of that meal, they would partake the Lord's Supper together. But each family would bring their own food. And there were different classes, and we don't know all the specific details. But it's very likely those who are rich and wealthy brought a great feast for themselves. And they just chowed down on this this massive feast. and, And they were drinking wine, some to the fact of getting drunk while others, probably the slave class, had very little. They didn't have much to bring. They were still slaves. They could come. Their masters would let them come. But they didn't have much to bring. So Paul is saying some are like feasting and getting drunk and others don't even have enough to eat. That, that doesn't describe unity. That's disunity. And the communion not only, uh, the Lord's Supper not only represents communion with Christ, but also represents communion with other believers. How can you say that you are, you are one with other believers while denying their basic needs of, of needing some food? And you just ignore them. And you just chow down on all this food you have while ignoring their need. So that, that, that's what Paul is, was addressing. He's addressing it, that partaking of the, the, of the Bread in the cup and an un, with an ungodly attitude, specifically with selfishness, a selfish, self-centered attitude, and with disunity, dishonored the Lord and would bring judgment upon you. Okay? So, so the Lord intends for us to, to, to have the communion, uh, this regular communion with Christ through, through the bread and the cup, to be a time of confession of sin. Okay? We should not partake of the Lord's communion if we have something against a fellow believer in Christ. The Lord would want you to go deal with that before you partake. 
And the, there's not an option of just saying, well, I'm not going to partake of the Lord's communion because I can't ever work that out. You have to do what Scripture says. So far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. And if you've done that, you can commit that to the Lord in good conscience, and you can partake of communion. But do not partake of communion if you have disunity with another believer in Christ. And that would include, especially, believing spouses, believing children. It is is a great hypocrisy for us to have disunity in our own families while partaking of the Lord's communion and declaring unity with Him. So we've, we've got to guard that. So we, why do we partake of the Lord's communion? We, to celebrate. Why do we celebrate the Lord's Supper? Because it's a, commanded by Jesus. It is a commemoration of Jesus' vicarious substitutionary death. And it's a communion with Him. And there's one more that I want to mention. And that is that the Lord's Supper is a proclamation. And we see this from 11, chapter 11, verse 26. It's a proclamation of, of Jesus Himself. Verse 26 says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. We proclaim it. It is a visible sermon of the Lord's death, of His body being broken, of His blood being spilt. And it is a proclamation of His death until He comes. We just don't preach about his death. We preach about his death, resurrection, and return. So it is a visible proclamation when we uh, carry this out. And and interesting enough, you can go back in the Old Testament and search this out. There are times where God gave the prophets not a sermon to give, but a living parable where they'd actually go and sometimes they'd have to eat, eat the scrolls. Or sometimes uh, do other kind of wild things. They would live out the parable right in front of the Israelites instead of just giving a word sermon. So this, this is a visible sermon. This is a proclamation, the same kind of word of the Lord's death and resurrection when we partake of the Lord's communion. So why do we celebrate the Lord's Supper? It's commanded by Jesus. It is a commemoration of Jesus' vicarious substitutionary death. It's a communion with Jesus. And it's a proclamation of Jesus. Uh, we need to be proclaiming it to one another and to uh, those unbelievers who are around us. Now, before I close, I want to answer some, some key, what I call key questions of how we celebrate the Lord's Supper. But due to time, I'll have to deal with these kind of superficially, but if you have questions about them, feel free to ask me after the service or some other time. So what are some key questions about the Lord's Supper and how we celebrate the Lord's Supper? First, what is the frequency? Why do we celebrate the Lord's Supper monthly? Well, I think the requirement in Scripture is that we celebrate the Lord's Supper on a regular basis. Uh, The Lord's Supper was established on the foundation of the Passover. How often was the Passover? Once a year. Right? So, uh, but it seems that the early church did it much more frequently. They, it wasn't something they just did on an annual basis. Because the Lord kind of took the Passover meal and gave it new meaning with, with the bread and the cup. So the early church took this, and, and it seems in, in Acts, in the early days in Acts, we see the church celebrating 
communion, the Lord's Supper, very frequently, perhaps each time that they met together. And we're not given a whole lot of details after that. Uh, Many churches celebrate it weekly. Uh, We choose to celebrate it monthly, really as as a kind of a way to balance doing it on a regular basis without... Um, doing it in a way where, where you do it so often it just becomes a mindless ritual that you do at the end of every service. So we're trying to balance those two things. It would not be wrong to do it every week. It wouldn't be wrong to do it, um, like, obviously, once a month. If we thought it were wrong, we wouldn't do it. Um, I do think once a year is not frequent enough, given that it's perp- of his purposes, uh, of, of what we want to declare and obey the Lord in. So again, it is a matter of, uh, I think it's one of those judgment calls the leadership has to make as to how often we celebrate it, but it does need to be on a, a regular basis in order to be obedient to our Lord and our God. And Scripture doesn't define that for us. So secondly, why do we use juice and not wine? Well, there's a huge debate um, about the uh, believer's use of wine or not wine, and I'm not going to open that can of worms except to say that Godly believers in other places of the world use wine, and it's not a big taboo issue. Okay? Okay. And in some cases where you have a common cup, it would actually be preferred. Because you want to drink after the 30th or 50th or 60th person if it's just juice. Probably not. Okay? But if it's wine, you don't have to worry about that. But the, the point of it is, the reason that we use juice is to not be offensive at all, right? It, it just removes any sense um, of any kind of um, impropriety whatsoever. And, it's, and wine really isn't needed. It's a symbolic act that we do. And because it's symbolic, we're not trying to recreate what Jesus did, right? That's the next question. What type of bread do we use? We're not trying to recreate exactly what Jesus did. If we did, we'd have to use unleavened bread, and we'd have to use wine, and there's a great debate over, over the strength of the wine, and was it diluted or not diluted, and that, the answer to that depends a lot on the, which historian you're, you're reading. Uh, so we don't know. We do know that those who drank too much wine got drunk. So uh, we also know from history that there seems to be some wine that was, more, that was non-alcoholic. Right? So... It just there's just no clear way to, to drive to, to get an answer to this from Scripture except to say that we want to pursue holiness and righteousness. We do not want to be a stumbling block to any, and so it's much easier just to use juice. And again, it doesn't matter. It doesn't doesn't take anything away from the symbolism that is represented in by that cup. Fourthly, the more, more important question, who is eligible to partake of, the, of communion of the Lord's Supper? And this we would answer by saying that a believer, a professing believer, is eligible to partake of the Lord's Supper in our church. So we would say for sure members of our church, but also those who are not members, but who are like-minded in faith and practice are welcome to join us in our celebration of the Lord's Supper. This will be someone who is baptized or soon will be baptized. So there, a lot of churches tie that together and make it a requirement for you to participate in communion. They say you have to be baptized. Our church does not take a firm stand on that, but we'll do say that it, it does, um, the, the natural order shown in Scripture is that one be baptized and then partake in the communion and the bread and the elements that come after that. 
So if you're partaking of the Lord's Supper and not yet baptized, that's something you need to talk about um, with the, one of the leaders or with me. Um, and uh, next week I will be teaching, not next week, but the next, because we'll have the missionary, but the two weeks from now I'll deal with the issue of baptism so we can uh, deal with that more and talk about that more at that time. Uh, but it is important that if you're a real believer that you be baptized, and I'll save that for two weeks from now. What, one question that comes up is, what about children? When children profess faith in Christ, should, uh, as a parent, should I allow them to participate in the Lord's communion? And my answer to this is, um, you really need to shepherd your children through their desires. Encourage them in their steps of faith. When they express faith in Christ, encourage that. While at the same time realizing that they're, they, at their age, they want to please mom and dad. And they can be very easy manipulated into saying things that don't originate from the Holy Spirit and from, from their heart. And so my preference, and I'll word it that, my preference is that children not partake in communion until they are baptized and until they are ready to experience church discipline. So people often want their children to go through the process of you know, partaking of communion. But what about church discipline? Right? That's part of church life too. So if your child is not ready to experience church discipline, if they are wayward and refuse to obey you and the church gets involved, then they are not ready to partake of the Lord's Supper either. So that's kind of those, those tie together and maybe help you think through that. And again, I, I know I'm just scratching uh, the very surface of this, so please feel free to ask questions later. The last question I want to deal with in closing, I know I'm running long here, but, but why do we pass the elements? Why do we take a, a plate and, and pass it down the aisle? Why don't we have something out, up front here and eat, you, know, you guys come and, and be served? I know churches, again, there's not, there's not a strict requirement about this in Scripture, so different churches, they're going to do it different way. The reason that we do it the way we do it is because I want to emphasize that this front is not an altar. There's no altar here. There's no sacrifice. There's no body of Christ. There's no blood of Christ. That's done once for all. And so by having you partake where you sit, right, helps emphasize that this, this isn't an altar. Right? The altar that Christ dealt with was on the cross, and that's, that's done once, once for all. So again, there's a lot of latitude in Scripture for different ways to do this. I'm just trying to help you understand why we do it uh, the way that we do. So again, why do we celebrate the Lord's Supper? Importantly, it's commanded. It's a commemoration of Him. It's a communion with the Lord Jesus and with those who love Him. And it's a proclamation of Him, of His death and resurrection until He returns. All right, let's, let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, we just want to Thank you for your loving kindness that you love us so much. You, that you, you loved us so much that you died for us while we were enemies of the cross. Lord, I, I just ask you, help us to better understand that. That there's no greater love that, that you could ever show us than what you have shown us through the death of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, I just ask that you would help us, help each person here to to more deeply reflect on the sacrifice that you paid on our behalf. Lord, we praise you for dying the death that we deserved, for taking the punishment that we earned 
that by faith that you, our sins are, are counted on you. And by faith we get your righteousness. What a, what a blessed truth that is. And what a special memorial you have given us to commemorate your death on the cross on our behalf and in the bread and in the cup. And I just thank you so much for your work of grace in our life. Work in each soul this, this morning, Lord God, just drawing us to yourself, some to saving faith, others to greater depths of sanctification and holiness. Search us and know us, O God. Know those wayward ways within us and help us, Lord God. Give us eyes to see them and the faith to repent and confess them and turn away that we would be the holy people you call us to be. In your name we pray.